Wesley read the text for this evening in the Advent reading. And so you just imagine an angel appears in God's glory to the shepherds out in the countryside with their sheep. And then that one lone angel is joined by a host of angels in glory appearing to that little group of shepherds. Well, J.B. Phillips, best known for his pioneering Bible translation, which I'm sure a number of you are familiar with, he also writes a Christmas fantasy book. And in his book, he imagines a senior angel showing a young fledgling angel the, the splendors of the universe. The dazzling galaxies and shooting stars, flaming suns as they travel from, from one end of the universe to the other end of the universe until finally they enter a certain galaxy of some 500 billion stars. They meander through that one galaxy until they draw near to a particular sun. And as they draw near to this sun, they then view a specific system of planets circling that sun. And the senior angel points out a small, insignificant planet that to the younger angel looks like just a dirty tennis ball and says to him, I want you to watch that one particularly. And the younger angel replies, it looks very small and dirty to me. What's so special about that one? And the senior angel says, why, that's the renowned visited planet. To which the younger angel reacts, do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to this fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do such a thing? And then wrinkling his nose in disgust, he says, do you mean to tell me that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures of that floating ball? And the senior angel replied, I do. And I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, in fact, to lift them up to become like him. And we just read the account of when the great and glorious prince visited our planet and right off the bat, we notice it happens in real history. This isn't fantasy in Luke 2. And that's one reason Luke opens by talking about the decree that was issued by Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man alive that all the Roman world, all under his dominion, should be registered for such a thing as taxes. And this really happened in real history in, in the real world of authoritative leaders and oppressive kingdoms and burdensome taxes, 
the great and glorious prince, the true Davidic king, even Christ the Lord, visited this fifth-rate little ball of a planet. And as we've seen during Advent, the image is God came down the mountain for us, for we could not go up the mountain. God the Son visited us, and not just any visit, rather he became one with us and entered our history. In 1961, when the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first man into space, the Russian dictator Khrushchev said that Gagarin reported to him, I looked and looked, but I didn't see God. And this prompted C.S. Lewis to write an article called The Seeing Eye. And Lewis said in his article, if there is a creator God, we wouldn't discover him by going up into the air. The creator God wouldn't relate to us like an object within his creation is related to another object. He'd rather relate to us like an author is related to a play. Shakespeare, the creator of Hamlet, the play, and of Hamlet, the character, Hamlet can only know Shakespeare if Shakespeare reveals information about himself to Hamlet within the play. And in a similar way, we can only know God if God reveals himself to us. And Keller adds to this, the wonder of Christmas is that God didn't just reveal information to us, God wrote himself into the drama of history. In fact, God, the author of history, became the main character within history. And so why did God do this? God sent his son to become man to reveal himself to us. But further than that, God sent his son to become man within our history as part of our history, which was not pleasant in order to rescue us and restore all things. Well, how do we see him rescuing and restoring all things even here? Well, one angel appears in glory. He terrifies the shepherds and he proclaims good news, the gospel of a savior, meaning a deliverer. Good news was originally a proclamation of victory in battle. You won a battle, you sent a herald. He proclaimed good news of a battle accomplished and won Savior is the one who led the victory against the enemy. Well, then after that one angel, a, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, more literally, that heavenly host idea is a select group of heavenly armies, the cutting edge heavenly warriors, not the cute little angels of Christmas cards, but something that strikes terror a fearsome division of God's warriors. They appear in glory with the first angel and they praise God. And most likely they don't sing like a choir, like our hymn, Angels We Have Heard on High, sweetly singing o'er the plains. In fact, the word sing doesn't actually even, is not actually included. But as Richard Pratt said here one time when he preached, it was rather a war chant or a victory cry. These angels in full military attire 
proclaiming a victory that's imminent and will be accomplished. It's to say the time has come, the invasion has begun, the Savior has become his great offensive, which an offensive of love to change all things. So he comes to accomplish what the angels cry out, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The great and glorious prince came to make the peace to the recipients of God's grace. And he'll defeat all his enemies, especially hell, death, and sin, and reconcile us to God. And when he accomplishes that, he'll begin the process of restoring all things. And so how will he do this? We already have hints of this. Because the angels don't appear to Caesar Augustus, which would be the most reasonable thing. Rather, the angels appear to a small group of shepherds. And the shepherds in that culture were well known to be the poor and the rough around the edges uncouth, a bit shady, despised by respectable people. God sends his heralding warriors to them, of all people. And the prince isn't born to a queen in a castle with a golden crib and women in waiting in luxurious finery, but to a peasant girl, nondescript, from a despised community, shut out of the inn in a cattle trough, surrounded by barn animals and wrapped in rags. The great and glorious prince comes into our fifth-rate little tennis ball in utter humility, for that's the very heart of God. And in fact, that's the only way to achieve our redemption. He comes to rescue us at great cost, which is what redemption means, by going lower and lower and lower to the cross itself. He comes down in order to become our sin. He comes down to the lowest spot to endure God's judgment on our behalf. And in that way, he will break the curse upon us and he'll bring us forgiveness and peace and to be reconciled with God. Later, Peter, you know, 30, 40 years later, is gonna say that angels love to peer into these things. And we just imagine that one angel and that multitude of angels loving to peer into what is happening, thrilled to have been selected to be the ones that get to announce it, entranced by amazing love and grace of God. Such is the God who acts in such a way towards sinners as to send his one and only son into our ruined little planet, our misery of sin and shame and suffering in order to win the great and glorious victory and reconcile us to God. Well, how do we respond to this this evening? Well, the shepherds give us a reflection of how we respond. We're we're overwhelmed with wonder and we glorify and praise God even as they did. Mary gives us a picture. We treasure all these things up and ponder them in our hearts. And might this reflect something of our attitudes this Christmas? 
And it may be that you are at this Christmas season feeling the hard realities of a broken world. Well, that is how our chapter begins, the hard realities of living in Caesar's kingdom. Well, the great and glorious prince came into our world and became one of us in order to feel those hardships too. He's a savior who not only wins the victory, but he walks with us all the way to glory. He sympathizes with us in our needs and hurts and strengthens us for every trial till he brings us up the mountain to God. He comes down to take our little histories of our little lives and put them inside God's big history. And what he says to us is, I was born for you. I was born to die for you. I rose again for you. Your hardships like mine win an eternal weight of glory. You are ultimately more than conquerors in me. Nothing you go through for me is meaningless. Like my cross, it will result in great good. All because I came down for you. And so as we gather and feast and open our gifts, we remember the gift of gifts, of which every other gift is just a faint reminder that the great and glorious prince came all the way down the mountain for you in order to give you God and all good things in him. Praise be to God. Let's pray. We bless your name, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor. We give you thanks for being born a frail and feeble child within our devastated world. And we thank you for having done that in order to redeem all things, redeem your people. We praise you for such humility and such boundless grace to take our place before judgment and render complete obedience on our behalf in order that you might grant us the forgiveness of sins. May our love and wonder in this gospel uh, even grow this Christmas season. Might it reflect something of the shepherds and Mary and something of the delight of the angels who got to announce it. In Christ's name, amen.